Let's pray. Father, what a joy to sing of your greatness. Uh, Lord, you are above, beyond uh, our capacity to comprehend. And we praise you for that. Uh, We praise you that you are not a small deity, but that you are the maker of heaven, of earth, of us. And Lord, that you order, you've decreed, and you've purposed every one of our steps in the lives that you've given us. I thank you for each individual represented here this morning. And I pray that our time together in your word would be fruitful and that your people would be edified. We know, Lord, that it's the unfolding of your word that gives life. So we pray that as we sit underneath this wonderful book, your word, we pray that you would give us life, help us to understand your truth, and help us to live in light of it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Lord willing, we will conclude uh, this marvelous chapter this morning. It's really good to see all of you this morning. Uh, There are a lot of new faces, and I don't know all of you who are members here uh, even, uh, just because I've only been here almost a full year now. Um, But there is something that I know about you, uh, even if I haven't met you, and it's something that's familiar to each one of us, and that is this. You are either currently in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you are about to head into a trial. Suffering and trials are inevitable, and they're inescapable in this life. Our Lord told us that this would be the case. In this world, he said, you will have trouble. The apostles warned all those who followed Christ that it was through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And James reminds us that trials are inevitable And we should encounter them with joy. And Peter tells us that these trials are not merely inevitable, but they are necessary. The trials of life are necessary. They prove our faith so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I don't know you, maybe, but I know that you are a person acquainted with trials, acquainted with difficulties, because these things are inescapable. The question before us and before you this morning is how are you handling the trials that you are enduring right now? How are you handling them? How are you responding to the trials of life? Is your response to the difficulties you face day in, day out, chronically, is your response one of faith and trust? Or are you despondent and dejected? In short, are you honoring God in the midst of your trial? Well, our text this morning gives us significant help in the area of honoring God through trial. 
So I invite you to stand with me as we read Isaiah 40. And we'll begin in verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You may be seated. This is a familiar passage, and it's one that is intimidating. Because it's so marvelous that you feel the weight anytime you're going to teach it. I feel that way right now. <laughs> that I, I, you don't want to under-deliver on such a wonderful text. And so I'm just going to give a disclaimer. This text uh, is worthy of much more than 45 minutes of our time. Uh, it is a spectacular text. Many of you have memorized it and found it to be increasingly helpful in your life. Um, but we are going to, by the grace of God, walk through this passage and, and learn something about how to honor God in our trials. You'll remember that Isaiah 40 was written to a people who were in the midst of an extraordinary trial. Theirs was not a trial uh, like ours per se. It was heightened. It was an exile. It was um, a, a trial in which they had been driven from their homes. They had watched their city burn to the ground, their temple destroyed. They were separated from their families and scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. Now, these dear people that Isaiah addresses had suffered immensely. And many of you, too, have suffered immensely. But what we have seen along the way with Judah, the people that Isaiah is addressing, is that somewhere during this process of being exiled and, and undergoing tremendous pain and difficulty, somewhere along the way, these precious people lost sight of the glory of God, the greatness of God. And they adopted a view of God that was um, greatly diminished. Their view of God had shrunk, and so they were no longer able to believe and take God at his word. They doubted his promises, they doubted his love, and they doubted that God was going to provide what they needed. Does that sound familiar to you? This is normal in the midst of trial. 
we begin to grow weary and tired. We lose sight of God, and we lose sight of his wonderful promises and all of the provision that he offers us. And so Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, has spent much of the time calling Judah to lift up her eyes and see the greatness, the majesty, and the transcendence of God. But lest Judah think that God is somehow so great and so transcendent that he exists and he's untouched by our trials, Isaiah comes in this last little section of chapter 40, and he calls Judah to not only behold the greatness of God, but specifically to behold the greatness of God's pastoral care. He is a great God, and he is a great shepherd. And what we will see in this text is that the key to honoring God perpetually in your trials is to have a clear vision, to behold the great shepherd. And when we see him, we are compelled to endure trials in a way that is not grumbling, murmuring, complaining, but in a way that is honoring to him. And there are three specific things about the great shepherd that Isaiah wants us to see. And I will give them to you as we go. But the first one is that if we are going to honor God in trial, we need to remember the folly of murmuring against our great shepherd. We must remember the folly of murmuring against the great shepherd. Certainly there is no surer sign that you have lost sight of the greatness of God than when you begin to murmur against him. Uh, You remember the story of Israel. No sooner had they uh, seen the majesty and power of God on display in Egypt, that they began to grumble against God, against Moses, against anyone (laughs) attached to Moses, and they made essentially fools of themselves in the wilderness. And I want to propose to you that the reason, in part, is because they had lost sight of the greatness of God, and they became so myopic, so nearsighted, so focused on themselves that it made sense to them to grumble. Let me read you a few sections from the book of Numbers. When you lose sight of the greatness of God, your enemies become great. In Numbers 14, 1-3, we read this. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night in light of the great people who inhabited the land that God had promised. And now God was telling them to enter in and to overtake. But when the spies returned with the report of how great these people were, Israel's response was weeping. They wept all night long. And then, notice this, all the sons of Israel grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. 
Would it not have been better for us to just return to Egypt? Do you hear their grumble? Against Moses, against Aaron, and then against the Lord directly. Why is the Lord doing this to us? They had utterly lost sight of the Red Sea. They had utterly lost sight of the plagues and seeing the power of God. They had lost sight of that. And God had diminished in their view. And now they were simply thinking about their own plight. Numbers 20, verse 3. The people grumbled when they were hungry and thirsty. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into the wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt? Do you remember the story, right? They were slaves in Egypt. And they, mo- and they, they cried out to God and God graciously heard their prayer and delivered them. But they had already forgotten what God had done. So mumbling and complaining and groaning made perfect sense. Why have you made us come out from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They had seen the majesty and the greatness of God put on display, and now they are moaning and complaining about what they have to eat and drink. Their complaining reminds us that we all have within us this incredible capacity to zero in on our own circumstances and lose sight of the larger story of God's redemption. Right? Isn't that true? When you are encountering a trial, isn't it easy to simply forget what God has done for you in the past? Don't we quickly do that? We become so nearsighted that we cannot see God's promises in the future and we forget God's faithfulness to us in the past. We are time-bound people. We're time-bound. The present to us is the urgent. We're people of the moment and sometimes it's difficult for us to see beyond our noses. And that's what we see in verse 27. We come to verse 27 of Isaiah 40, and we see that gradually the people of Judah had adopted a low view of God, and the result was that they became bound to their situation. And verse 27 captures their core complaint against God. Look at it with me. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. In other words, God has overlooked us and God is unconcerned about me. The verb tenses in this verse, in the first part at least, suggest that this sort of complaint against God had become a continual pattern. You could translate it this way. Why do you keep on saying and keep on speaking this way? This had become a trademark of their life. Grumbling, complaining against God. And then the content of their complaint. My way is hidden from God. It's hidden. It's entirely out of God's purview. 
and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Or literally, my case, my case keeps passing by the notice of my God. Have you brought a case to the Lord? A trial, there's an issue, you need his help, you need his assistance. And it seems to them, they've brought their complaint, they've brought their request to the Lord. They've experienced injustice. Often the most difficult trials are when you have been wrongly treated. And Israel, or Judah, looks and says, our complaint before the Lord just keeps passing by him. He's on the judgment seat. We bring our complaint, and he does nothing. He looks at us, and he turns away. He doesn't care. I don't know about you, but that is a common complaint. It's common in the midst of trials to feel like we are alone, to feel abandoned, to feel as if no one truly cares, to feel as if God is not hearing our prayers for relief, for strength, right? It becomes something of a downward spiral. We look around and we think we're all alone. This is a unique trial. No one's ever experienced this specific thing. And you just sort of, no one cares, no one understands. I'm alone. This is lonely. I'm miserable. And at the bottom of that descent is the culmination. Not only does no one care about me, but God himself has abandoned me. And here I am, all alone, at the bottom with no hope. Well, one thing that I love about the prophets is that they don't just put up with that kind of nonsense. <laughs> right? We feel that, and we know that's an experience that most of us have, have encountered. We've experienced that. But the prophets don't come to us with kid gloves and say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that this is hard for you. We need that. All right? But sometimes the prophets, sometimes what we need is someone to come to us and say, hey, Wake up, right? God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned you. And that's what Isaiah is going to do here. He's not going to let Judah mope around in self-pity. He's not going to let their murmur against God go uncorrected. And so, in verse 25, he begins to just put on display how absurd it is to say that God has abandoned me. He's lost sight of me, or he's overlooked me. Look at verse 25. He says, To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who has created these stars? I read uh, this week that on a clear, moonless night, there are about 3,000 stars visible to the naked eye. 3,000 stars. And all of these stars are visible in the Milky Way galaxy, which is the galaxy that we're in. I am not an astronomer, uh, but I can read. Um, I also read that the Milky Way galaxy contains an estimated 200 billion stars. Right? Milky Way galaxy, 200 billion stars. We can see 3,000 of them at night. Okay? Well, it's also estimated that there are another 200 billion galaxies like the Milky Way. <laughs> I can't do the math. 
But there are a lot of stars. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. And then notice the next line. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. And because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. 200 billion stars in the universe. God created them. God leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. And because of the greatness of his might, none of them are missing. He is, in this sense, the cosmic shepherd, right? He's the cosmic shepherd. He oversees the care of billions of stars. He knows them by name. He leads them out by number. Now, here's the question. If God has such meticulous oversight and command of the stars, why do you think he has somehow overlooked you? Why do you think he knows the billions of stars, but he doesn't know your plight? Do you think that you are of lesser value than a star? Let me, let me help you correct that. <laughs> um, God's people are called the apple of his eye. It's, it's, it's shocking. The apple of his eye. How, val- how valuable to you is your eye? The apple of the eye is like the pupil of the eye. How much care uh, do you exercise concerning your vision? How carefully do you protect your eyes? God protects his people. They are the apple of his eye. In Christ, Christian, you are the apple of the Lord's eye. That is remarkable. It's flooring, but true. Isaiah 43, 1-7, God's people are precious to him. The reference to the apple of the eye passage is Deuteronomy 32, 10, by the way. God's people are called his prized possession, his inheritance. His inheritance. These are the things that he keeps guard over and watches over and, and, and does so with joy. So much so that he gave his own son to reconcile his people to himself. And, and, and as a believer... And if you're here as an unbeliever, this is still the truth. There is nothing more than, that God can do to demonstrate his love to sinners than he has already done. It's Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, if you are in the midst of trial, remember that Christ shed his blood for you. You are loved and you are precious in the sight of God. Do you think that God would give his son to die for you and then abandon you? Do you think so? Do you think that the great shepherd orders and keeps the stars, but does not order and keep your life? Remember Jesus' words. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap. 
They don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet one of them, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. And here's Jesus' application. So do not fear. You are more valuable than sparrows. If the sovereign ancient of days oversees the rising and fall of such insignificant creatures as a sparrow, do you think he's not overseeing your trial? Friends, he is. Judah said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And God's response was this, Isaiah 49, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Do you see the folly of murmuring against such a God? It's madness, but once we lose sight of the great shepherd, we fail to contemplate his greatness, we decline, and we easily embrace the folly of grumbling against God. You will not trust a God that you do not know. That's true. You will not trust a God you don't know. And you will steadily grumble against a God that you forget. We need to remember that our great loving shepherd is the one who governs and appoints every trial and every difficulty according to the perfect counsel of his will. He shepherds the cosmos with ease, care, and precision. And we can rest assured that he is shepherding us with the same measure of care and precision. So if we're going to honor God in trial, we have to see how foolish it is and absurd to murmur against our shepherd. We are the people of his flock, right? He is the one who oversees our lives. And then secondly, if we're going to honor God in trial, we need to consider the perfections of the great shepherd. The perfections of the great shepherd. That's in verse 28. Here, in this one verse, Isaiah begins with a repeated question from chapter 40. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The point here is obvious. Judah has heard, and they do know. The problem is they have forgotten. And the rest of verse 28 makes it crystal clear what it is that they had forgotten. Namely, they had forgotten to remember the perfections of their great shepherd. They had forgotten to remember the character, the perfections, the attributes, the nature of the one who had committed himself to govern and oversee their lives. And we'll just look at each one of these one by one. First, he says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God? The everlasting God. The first time we see this name, the everlasting God, is in Genesis 21, 33. When Abraham plants a tree as a token of the treaty between him and Abimelech. 
And there Abraham is said to have called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And this was a reminder for Abraham that God's covenant to him was unbreakable and everlasting. So you remember the story of Abraham, that he is a stranger and alien in a land that God has promised him would become his. And God keeps coming to him with promises that these things are going to come about. That was the promise. And Abram's experience was, uh, or rather seemed to contradict, the promise. And we know that Abraham continued to fight to take God at his word. And one of the ways that Abraham fought here to take God at his word was to remember that the God who had promised him uh, the promised land, the promise of blessing, the promise of nations, was the everlasting God. When Abraham considered God, the everlasting God, it helped him to get above his time-bound perspective and trust the God who sees the end from the beginning. And that is a secret to honoring God in your trial. Seeing God, the everlasting God. He is not bound by time. He declares the end from the beginning. We are so focused on the present And we can't see beyond or behind, usually. But God, He is the one who is eternal. He is the one who is everlasting. He is the one who has declared both the end, where you're headed, and the beginning of your life. And every spot along the way is meticulously governed by the everlasting God. Listen to Psalm 90. Moses drew on this same truth of God's everlasting nature to draw strength and comfort. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. And notice this. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. That's like four hours. They're like a watch in the night. A thousand years like yesterday or like a few hours. It's easy to forget in the midst of our trial that we don't have all the information. We forget that we do not have comprehensive knowledge of our current situation, and we don't know the future. But there is one who does, and he has promised to be our shepherd. And so if you want to honor God in trial, you need to meditate, consider this perfection of our shepherd. He is everlasting. He declares the end from the beginning. Second, the second perfection of God that we can meditate on is that he is the covenant God. Our shepherd is the covenant God. Notice in verse 28, the use of the name Lord here in all caps. Whenever we see that name, it's a reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And this is a special name of God. 
So it's special. It's, it's, it's special. Um, it's an, a, a very important reality that we see that our shepherd is Yahweh. He is the covenant God. Whenever we see this name, it reminds us that God is personal. Right? He's not a distant, abstract, cold deity. He's personal. And he's involved. He's covenanted with his people. He's made a commitment to them. The name Yahweh communicates God's nearness with his people, his concern for his people, and it emphasizes his redemptive purpose for his people. That is a balm during trial. God has promised to keep you. He's promised to shepherd you. He is so tied up in your flourishing that he gave his son to reconcile you to himself. He, is, he has, as it were, skin in the game, right? One Bible scholar says this about the name Yahweh. The force of this name is not simply that God is or that, God is, or that God is present, but that God will be faithfully God for his people. God will be God with and for his people at all times and in all places. He never stops. He never ceases his shepherding oversight of you. God will never be an absent shepherd. He's not like those worthless shepherds who flee when things are difficult. He's there. He's present. He's, he's committed. Committed. And he's covenanted to be the shepherd of his people. So when you think God has abandoned me, friends, there is no way that that is true. God is the covenant God. He who did not spare his own son, but freely delivered him up for us all. How will he not also graciously with him give us everything? Well, our shepherd is the everlasting God. He's the covenant God. And then third, verse 28, our shepherd is no ordinary shepherd. He is the creator God. There is no other shepherd who created the sheep that he oversees. But God has. Shepherds know sheep well. But God created the sheep. God is the one who created you And as we see in Isaiah 40 over and over and over again, God is the one who creates by his uh, overwhelming power, but he also sustains that which he has created. He did not create the world to be void. He created it with purpose. and, And every little detail works to accomplish God's purpose. He's the great shepherd but he's the creator. When we fail to see ourselves before him as the creature, we usurp his role as sustainer and keeper of our lives. One of the problems that we perpetually have is we lose sight of our creatureliness. Listen to Psalm 100. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people 
and the sheep of his pasture. Know this. It is he who made us, not we ourselves. Basic truth, but a balm to us in trial. He is the one who created us. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he will uphold me by the word of his power. Fourth, the great shepherd who oversees our lives is inexhaustible. He does not become weary or tired. Matthew Henry captures this well when he writes, God upholds the whole creation and governs all creatures and is neither tired nor toiled. And therefore, no doubt, he has power to relieve his people when they are brought ever so low. He is the creator. He is the everlasting God. He's the covenant God. And his, his commitment to care for us is inexhaustible. His commitment to uphold the universe is inexhaustible. And then fifth, the fifth perfection of the great shepherd is that he's inscrutably wise. Notice the last part of verse 28. His understanding is inscrutable. It is one thing to have power it is one thing to have a powerful shepherd. It's quite another to have a good shepherd. It's still another thing to have an inscrutably wise shepherd, right? And that's our shepherd. He is sovereign and he's good. And he's wise. His wisdom is never at a loss. Every trial, every difficulty, every suffering that you experience is purposeful in God's hand. Trials are medicines, said John Newton, which our gracious and wise physician prescribes. And he does so because we need them. He proportions the frequency and the weight of them to what each case requires. So let us trust in his skill and thank him for every prescription. That's quite a perspective. If we're going to honor God in trial, we need to first consider how foolish it is to murmur against him. We need to second contemplate the boundless perfections of our shepherd. And last, we need to consider the provision of our shepherd. This is verse 29 to 31. Verse 29 might be one of the sweetest truths in Scripture. Here is God, boundless in his perfections, transcendent and unimaginably great, yet in these verses we see that he does not despise those who are so unlike him. Rather, his perfections and his promise compel him to come to the aid of his weak and weary people. Look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Simple, easy to understand. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. 
Isn't that great? Weak, weary people, beaten down by trials. He comes to them. And out of the boundless overflow of his perfections, he strengthens them. Not only that, he increases the strength and power. Verse 29, it says, he gives strength to the weary. Uh, weary here is the, the idea is just a failure to, un, to, to endure life's pressures. Right? It's wearying to be in trial. Verse 29b, to him who lacks might. This is one who no longer has strength or vitality. Right? You feel like you are a twig that's about to be cracked. It's, it's over to you. It, it, you're, you're at the end of your rope. And then he comes and increases power. And this word power here is related to the word bone. And it has the, the, the nuance of durability and stability. To the one who looks like they're about to break, he comes and he increases them so that they can sustain the trial. God in his great might, vast power, never grows weary, but his people certainly do, right? Well, God's delight is to come to the weak and to the weary and to increase their strength. But notice that there is a prerequisite here. There's a prerequisite, prerequisite for qualifying for this strength and this provision of God. God's strength doesn't just come to anyone. Those who are self-sufficient and depend only on their own resources cut themselves off from God's supply of strength. Look at verse 30. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men stumble badly. Right, this is a contrast between those who are weak, confessedly weak, and then those who have, um, under their delusion, think that they have the power to navigate life on their own. They're called vigorous young men, or young men or vigorous young men. These are men that are especially strong. They're chosen men. They're the cream of the crop. This is a, a word that's either used of military age men or men at the pinnacle of their lives. And verse 30 says, these kind of men, even these kind of men, they're going to stumble. And they will stumble badly. And the idea here is, is there's an emphasis on the word stumble badly. It's like they will stumble stumbling. And in Hebrew, it's a way to emphasize the drama of their fall. It is not just a trip. It's not just a slip up. It's a life crisis. They will stumble badly. It's, it's to the end of their strength. They're exhausted and they have nowhere else to go. Those kind of people will be exhausted. Those kind of people will stumble badly. But look at verse 31. Yet, or but rather, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. In contrast to the strong of the world, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. Here then are the two prerequisites 
from verse 29 and verse 31 for accessing the strength of God in trial. First, we have to recognize our need. If you walk around thinking that you are self-sufficient, a vigorous young man, you will stumble badly. And you will cut yourself off from the strength that God supplies. Self-sufficiency is heinous to the Lord. We were created to draw our strength from him. So we have to first recognize our need. And second, verse 31, we wait. We wait on the Lord. Those who wait on the Lord. Recognize your need and wait. To wait here is simply to hope. It's to hope in God. Whenever you have beheld the great shepherd, waiting becomes um, your natural bent. Whenever you get a vision of the everlasting God, your patience is strengthened. You remember that with the Lord, the everlasting God, a day is as a thousand years and as a watch in the night. So I trust that in my trial, God, my everlasting shepherd, is going to work out my scenario in his timing. We depend on him for his timing. And we wait for him. We trust him. We understand that he is at work. That he is declaring, decreeing the end from the beginning in our life. We understand Psalm 139, 13 to 16. That every day of our lives as his people has been written in his book before there was a single day. Those are the kind of truths that enable us to wait, to hope in the Lord. And notice that the people who recognize their own weakness and those who wait upon God will be amply supplied with the necessary strength to honor God in their trial. In verse 31, just powerfully captures the results of receiving God's strength. When you think about being at the bottom of your trial, and you feel the weight of life, (laughs) the weight of your trial, you feel like you can't go on. It is a feeling that, well, you feel helpless. You feel like you are, I mean, the the metaphor, at the end of your rope. There's no moving forward. And the last thing you expect is to get up and run. The last thing you expect is to, to mount up on wings like eagles and soar. But that's what our text says. Our text says in verse 31, those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run, not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That is the result of living in the strength of the Lord. The people who confess and own their own weakness, place their hope in God, will arise, they will run, And they will walk in newness of life to honor God in the midst of trials. They will begin to draw their strength, not from the shallow well of their own resources, but from the inexhaustible fountain of the great shepherd. 
And friends, if we are going to honor God in trial, we must draw from that well. We must draw from him. We must come to him weak, weary, wounded. Come to him as we are and confess and own our own weakness. And God promises to take our weakness and exchange it for his strength. That is available. That strength is available to every one of us if we wait, if we place our trust in him. If you, though, don't have a big view of God, if you lose sight of God, you will inevitably think too highly of yourself, and you will, you will be like the young men in verse 30, and you will try to run, and you will fall. If by your own arrogance you cut yourself off from the provision of God, your destiny will be to fall. But if, by the grace of God, you see him, and you get a vision of his greatness, and you see his power, and you see yourself in comparison to him, then you will recognize the folly of grumbling against him. What can you provide that God has not given? What can you do that God has not done? It is a foolish thing to grumble against him. And if you get a vision and see and behold the greatness of the shepherd's perfections, you will see that you have access to his boundless strength to help you in trial. And you'll no longer lay paralyzed underneath your trial, but you will rise up on wings like eagles and run and walk in a way that's honoring to the Lord. And friends, I know that that is your desire. So why don't we, with the Lord's help, commit to see, to consider, to meditate, to pray for a clearer vision of our great shepherd. Grumbling then will be absurd. Our weakness then will become our strength. And then our lives will be full of joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness to us. And thank you for the absolute certainty of your word and your promise. Lord, we praise you for your faithfulness and ask that you would help us by your grace to put into practice what we have seen here in Isaiah 40 for your name's sake. Amen.